Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 63 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievenu. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So I found something interesting that I wasn't looking for. It's an email from Chandler. Okay. And it's series of translations of the bridge with reversal of meaning in mother language. Opustos. Then a homophonic translation from the negated into English as the original intent. Two translations side by side. Wait, what is the mother language in this case? <laughs> Let's open it up and see. A proem to Brooklyn Bridge from the bridge. So this is this is this is a this is like a translation of something of a of a piece. It's of of Hart Crane's. Uh, but other than that description you read, you're not really sure how this worked. No. <laughs> Notes on proem to Brooklyn Bridge. Proem, introductory poem to Brooklyn Bridge, is the introductory poem to Hart Crane's long poem, The Bridge. Pivot. To cause to turn to turn around something. Liberty. Among other things, the Statue of Liberty. Tumult. Loud sound, commotion, agitation. Forsake. Abandon, go away from. Apparitional. Ghost-like, seeming to appear. Inviolate, intact, non-violate or profaned. Panoramic. Comprised a wide view. Slay, as in sleight of hand, pun on slight and sight. And thee, the Brooklyn Bridge, Bethlehemite, Madman, Down Wall, Wall Street, Wall of the Building, Rip Tooth, the Tooth of Rip Saw, Rip Saw in a Hand, Saw the Cuts Wood, with the Wood Grain, Rip Saw, Teeth are Chisel Shaped, and Teeth Spread Lightly Out Toward, Acetylene, as in Acetylene Torch, a Welder's Tool, Derrick, Large Crane for Hoisting and Moving Heavy Objects, Tall Frameworks over an Oil Well or Hole, Obscure as the heaven of the Jews. Heaven is a vaguer notion in the Jewish tradition than in the Christian. Hirdaran, reward, accolade, award, terrific, terrifying, pariah, and outcast. Unfractions, continuous, unbroken, immaculate. Unspotted, pure, clean parcels, tied packages. Curve ship, the pun on worship and ship, the curve of a ship, and the bridge. Hmm. <laughs> Should we read Hart Crane's? So that's why it said proem, because To Brooklyn Bridge is the proem of the bridge. Right. Should we read uh, Hart Crane's The Bridge now, too? Sure. To Brooklyn Bridge. How many dawns chill from his rippling rest? The seagull's wing shall dip and pivot him, shedding white rings of tumult building high over the chained bay waters, liberty. Then, with inviolate curve, forsake our eyes as apparitional as sails that cross some page of figures to be filed away. Till elevators drop us from our day, I think of cinemas, panoramic slights with multitudes bent towards some flashing scene, never disclosed but hastened to again, foretold to other eyes on the same screen. And thee... Across the harbor, silver-paced, as though the sun took step of thee, yet left some motion ever unspent in thy stride, implicitly thy freedom staying thee, 
Out of some subway scuttle, cell or loft, a bedlamite speeds to thy parapets, tilting there momentarily, shrill shirt ballooning, a jest falls from the speechless caravan. Down wall from girder into street noon leaks, a rip tooth of the sky's acetylene. All afternoon, the cloud-flown derricks turn, thy cables breathe the north Atlantic still, and obscure is that heaven of the Jews, thy guerdon, accolade thou dost bestow of anonymity time cannot raise, vibrant reprieve and pardon thou dost show, O harp and altar of the fury fused, how could mere toil align that quiring strings? Terrific threshold of the prophet's pledge, prayer of pariah and the lover's cry. Again the traffic lights that skim thy swift, unfractioned idiom, immaculate sigh of stars bending thy path, condense eternity. And we have seen night lifted in thine arms. Under thy shadow by the piers I waited, only in darkness is thy shadow clear. The city's fiery parcels all undone, already snow submerges an iron year. O oh, sleepless is the river under thee, vaulting the sea, the prairie's dreaming sod, unto us lowliest sometimes sweep, descend, and of the curved ship lend a myth to God. Ah, that's always such a nice poem. It's very uh, bombastic in some ways, but dealing with a subject matter that doesn't normally get that kind of treatment, right? True. I think that's what makes it this, you know, kind of punk rock type of thing. The reason we were reading Hart Crane here, in particular, is because of our subject matter today. Indeed. So yeah, we're talking about heavy topic this week. So I've been wanting to do this topic. It's been on my list of topics for a while, but uh, with a couple of celebrity suicides that have happened in the past couple of weeks... It seemed like kind of an appropriate time to do it because, you know, as ridiculous as it is, it seems like social media suddenly cares about suicide for a second because some celebrities died. So I've been wanting to do an episode about poets who've committed suicide. So I think before we get too too deep into that, I mean, I, I don't... I think there's no way to avoid some kind of frank discussion here in some ways. So, I mean, I think we've got to say, like, if that's something that is going to be difficult for you to listen to, maybe this is not the episode for you to listen to. Um, and that's okay? Yeah, and that's fine. You know, come back. We've got 62 other episodes you can <laughs> you know, listen to. Come back next week and do that. And then... I had wanted to put like a a little bit of a of a some sort of suggestion if that's something that you're you're struggling with. And I will say that's something that I've struggled with my whole life, at least since since I was a teenager. I've struggled with depression and I've struggled with suicidal thoughts. It's something that I deal with on a Same here. on a daily basis. And I, I understand how difficult that can be. So if that's something that you struggle with, you know, I don't I don't want to give a crisis hotline number. I, I thought I was going to do that, but then I was looking into it. And, and the thing is, 
And that's one of the difficult things with suicide. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but uh, they're not very effective. And really, I personally would... That's not something that I want to I wanna necessarily throw someone that way. But, you know, what is, what is effective is to get help, to get some therapy, and that, that, that's something that we do know can be effective and that you should try to do. And I'm going to throw up links. The first link on the show notes is going to be for um, the National Alliance on Mental Health. I'm going to throw up the one for that, their suggestions of how to find a mental health professional. And I'm also going to throw up the, the local New Orleans National Alliance for Mental Health site because I think that's the most useful. The thing is, when you we suicide's a complicated thing, and we'll probably get into this a little bit as we're talking about it. But uh, we don't know; no one really knows what causes it. Depression is a factor, but the reality is, of people who have depression, only two percent of them ever attempt suicide. So it's not like just because you suffer from depression. That that is necessarily means that you're going to commit suicide. Where's that statistic from? Um, I was from some government site. I don't think I wrote where the where the statistic is from. Yeah, um, it's some. I mean, some of those statistics are real. Real, uh, you know, suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in the U.S., but it is still pretty rare, right? Thirteen people per a hundred thousand. Which, that's still, you know, it's still a pretty rare thing, uh, which is which is good. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a serious thing. Uh, but, you know, talking about why I don't want to support the crisis hotline is, it may have some effect. I'm not saying it has no effect. And if, it, if it's for someone that works for you, it's good, but that money could be spent in better ways. The problem with it is anything where you're addressing the general public doesn't have a large effect. You, it needs to be focused on people who really are at high risk for these things, right? And so the problem is you're, that's a lot of money to get that information out there to be, like, informing people about the public. And the other thing is there's been some studies showing that that actually is a negative effect, especially for adolescents, because it makes them less likely to seek out help. So I don't know. And I'm, I'm not saying it's a totally negative thing, but I think the money could be spent in better ways. We know that 90% of people who commit suicide have attempted suicide before. Uh, you know, I'd rather see that money go to treatment for people. You know, it's New Orleans. We know it's hard to find mental health treatment at all. And especially to have your health insurance pay for it is really difficult. I'd rather see that money going to advocating for health insurance paying for mental health treatment. Yeah. You know, I think that money could be spent in better ways. But there's this idea that creative people in general, but poets specifically, have a much higher rate of suicide than the rest of the population, right? What is <laughs> your, like, what, what are your, like, when you think of poets... And suicide, what are kind of the general things that, I mean, and some of them may be, may be wrong, but it was just kind of the general things I, I think people I, think I, of. I mean, that. I think of the, mo I think of like these sort of like, uh, sort of like these heralded 
people in the world of poetry that are sort of like heralded as these like super intense suicides, you know, these like really intense, you know, uh, deciding to do things to themselves, like horrific things, you know, like I just think of like all the different, I mean, I think of like, we, yeah, like who, 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 I mean, I think the number one one is probably easy. Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath. But I mean, and we'll, we'll talk about her in a little bit, but who else like jumps to mind? Well, Hart Crane. Hart Crane. I, mean, who, I think John Berryman comes up a lot, too. Um, Berryman does come up a lot, yeah. And it's part of this, I think, kind of, there seems... There's a few more people you have on your oh, list. Oh, I have a lot of people on the list. We'll, we'll, <laughs> there, I mean, there's... And I'll post a link to some things, too. I mean, there's actually a whole Wikipedia page of just a list of poets who've, who've died... By suicide, right? And that's not even counting people who've attempted suicide and, and were, but were fortunately not successful at it, right? But it seems like it's almost become part of the romantic milieu of what people think of, of being a poet is. Kind of. It's built into it. It's in the fabric. It's in this weird part of it, you know? Do you yeah. why why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, because it's like because I think I think I think my initial reaction, what didn't come through maybe when I first at the beginning of the show, is like I feel that it's part of the narrative of poetry. It's part of part of this um, sort of like that poet suffer. Uh, it's sort of like the dark. It's sort of like embracing the darkness. It's like the side of poetry in which, in which you know, the poet goes deep into a place and and sort of like embraces a different poetic sphere, uh, a little different of an energy. Like either it happens in a flash of a moment, or it happens out of a sequence of events. But I think it's like taking the language so deeply and so darkly into a particular narrative of, like, if you think about all the different words that you can consume by talking to people and reading books and studying and looking at the atmosphere around you, maybe these poets, you know, were pulled into a, a different, a different sort of web of language that other poets weren't into. And it's almost like you're dealing with like a different, you're dealing with a different like type of psyche, but also like a certain, amount of consumption of culture how, for however long they lived from the day they were born until the day they died. And so, like, those poets almost, like, are working in, like, a different... They're almost, like, working on a completely different... At least that's where we put them. We put so them, we put them on this... That, yeah. You know? Oh, well, I think there's... Plain. A, I think there's, them. you know, I mean, but yeah, I think that's sort of the romanticized idea, right? That there's... And, and, it, and it's not just for poets who've committed suicide, right? I think, like, if you think back to the romantic tradition and the way people look at Keats and... Mm -hmm. Even poets who die from other means, when they die, die at a younger age, there is this kind of idea that poetry somehow did it. Oh, back to Spicer. Vocabulary did this to me or something, right? Which I think is a problem, right? I think that's a problem with that kind of romanticized idea. But maybe we should pause and have a poem here, a poem or two here. Sure. 
strangely, I was thinking about this and totally unbidden. Uh, I think we've got to thank local artist Eric Buchanan for this because he is a member of some sort of beat group on Facebook. And today, they posted about Lou Welch. Uh, do you know Do you know that poet, Lou Welch? Name sounds really familiar. He was, you know, he was good friends with Gary Snyder, but he also like hung around with Kerouac and Ginsburg and all those fellas. But okay. He was teaching at University of California. But, you know, I think he was kind of in a rough state. Like, I think the money stuff was tough for him. And, I mean, part of the, I think part of the post that I was reading was, like, him talking about how he was like, that's the hard thing, right? Like, you're a poet, and you need to make money. Like, you don't make much money teaching at a university like that uh, for the random course and here and there. And he was like, you, you know, he's like, so I've got to go get a job being a, being a plumber or something. So you're asking me, I'm a poet, that's what I do, that should be my job. You don't ask plumbers to go write poems, right, on the side. So I don't know, you know, you know there's not like a reason for any of those things, but I, he certainly had some stress with some of those things. Another thing I found out, which I never knew about him, was, you know, he had this woman who I think was a Polish immigrant that he was long-term involved with, and they had a stepson, who I don't remember his real name, but in honor of Lou Welch, of Louis Welch, he took his name for his music career, Huey Lewis. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Huey Lewis took his stage name from his stepfather, Lou Welch, Louis Welch, oh my who, is a, who is a beat poet. This sounds like really familiar, because now I'm thinking about Huey Lewis's life. And he had a really strange life. Like, he traveled the world and stuff when he was, like, in his 20s or something, right? He did, like, a bunch of... He had, like, a whole different life before he met... Or he before he became, like, Huey Lewis the musician. Yeah. 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 So I didn't know that. I never so knew that. his father? And so this, this is, is his, his stepfather. And, uh, but it was pretty... You know, who raised him, essentially. Wow. It was his main male influence in life. But Lewis Welch was, I mean, I think a very respected poet at the time. Uh, but I don't know, one day he just left a, a letter in his car, in his truck, I think, saying he was going to, um, that sounded like a suicide note. Uh, and they knew he had a gun on him. And he went out into the wilderness. Uh, they never found his body. What? But because of the note, the assumption is that he did kill himself, but... So I want to read one of one of his poems, but I think it's a, this is another funny thing I think about poets who've committed suicide. It gets really difficult. Like I'd like to just read this poem and appreciate it, and we're gonna do that. But the, the difficult thing is, like when that happens, you can't help but have that affect how you look at their work, right? In some way, it's a, yeah. it's kind of it, that's kind of a hard thing about it, right? Yeah. So this is, this is his poem, Chicago Poem. I lived here nearly five years before I could meet the Middle Western day with anything approaching dignity. It's a place that lets you understand why the Bible is the way it is. Proud people cannot live here. The land's too flat, ugly, sullen, and big. 
It pounds men down past humbleness. They stoop at thirty-five, possibly cringing from the heavy and terrible sky. In country like this, there can be no God but Yahweh. In the mills and refineries of its south side, Chicago passes its natural gas in flames, bouncing like Bunsen's from stacks a hundred feet high. The stench stabs at your eyeballs. The whole sky green and yellow backdrop for the skeleton steel of a bombed-out town. Remember the movies in grammar school? The goggled men doing strong things in showers of steel spark. The dark screen cracking light and the furnace door opening with a blast of orange like a sunset or an orange. It was photographed by a fairy, thrilled as a girl, or a Nazi who wished there were people behind that door, hence the remote beauty. But Seavers, whose old man spent most of his life in there, remembers a nigger in a red t-shirt pissing into the black sand. It was five years until I could afford to recognize the ferocity. Friends helped me. Then I put some love into my house. Finally, I found some quiet lakes in a farm where they let me shoot pheasant. Standing in the boat one night, I watched the lake go absolutely flat smaller than raindrops, and only here and there the feeding rings of fish were visible a hundred yards away, and the bluegill caught that afternoon lifted from its northern lake like a tropical. Jewel at its ear, belly gold so bright you'd swear he had a light in there, his color faded with his life, a small green fish. All things considered, it's a gentle and undemanding planet even here. Far gentler here than any of a dozen other places. The trouble is always and only with what we build on top of it. There's nobody else to blame. You can't fix it, and you can't make it go away. It does no good appealing to some ill-invented thunderer brooding above some unimaginable crag. It's ours. Right down to the last small hinge it all depends for its existence. Only and utterly upon our sufferance. Driving back, I saw Chicago rising in its gases, and I knew again that never will the man he made to stand against this pitiless, unparalleled monstrosity. It snuffles on the beach of its great lake like a blind red rhinoceros. It's already running us down. You can't fix it. You can't make it go away. I don't know what you're going to do about it, but I know that I'm going to do about it. I'm just going to walk away from it. Maybe a small part of it will die if I'm not around feeding it anymore. It's a good poem, though. <sighs> yeah, it is really good. It travels. It travels distance, but it also keeps you with it the whole time. You know? Well, and it's like a lot of beat poetry, I guess. It's very voice-based and very personal, but the imagery is very strong at the same time. It doesn't lose track of the imagery, even though it's very... It has a personal and voice. It has based. a really particular feel of feel of field composition in it. It feels like it was written on the side of the road or like wait while waiting for a bus stop somewhere or like Yeah. It has a feeling like it's like it, it's like sort of like in a middle of nowhere space. Oh. What? And maybe it was while he was in Chicago, but when he was younger he was he worked for an ad agency. Man, I don't know, this guy got around. But you know what? Famous ad slogan he came up with? What? Raid. It kills roaches dead. <laughs> Shut up. Who else came up with that? He, he made that. 
Can we put a raid ad on the notes? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> a raid, an early raid ad? Blue Welch? But yeah, so I thought that was kind of fortuitous that he came up today. I, I was not thinking about him as I was thinking of poets who committed suicide, so that was nice that they came up, and, and, and I like him. He's a good poet. Yeah. So I guess the funny thing is, there is a lot of research in general that people who are creative have a higher rate of suicide than most of the population. You know, there's there's been a lot of psychological research into that. So, I mean, we've got both of those things. We've got this kind of romanticized idea of it, but there seems to be some kernel of truth there. In 2012, there was this large Swedish study looking at suicide related to creativity. It, it was over 40 years, and they used, they looked particularly at patients suffering from various mental illnesses and compared it to census information for the country. Um, and, you know, and this is just one study, but there's lots of studies kind of saying similar things. But I thought this one was kind of interesting. It said, in general, it looked at 1.2 million patients. And it said, people in creative fields are more likely to commit suicide but they're actually less likely to suffer from schizoaffective disorder, depression, anxiety, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, autism, ADHD, or anorexia. But then writers are kind of the exception for the other creative fields. Writers are more likely to have those mental illnesses and also twice as likely as the general public to commit suicide. Great. Writers. Yeah. That's twice. But there's probably some professions that are like 20 times more likely. There's only one profession, and I was going to, you, you kind of jumped the gun, but we're going to get into this with someone talking about one of the other studies I was going to talk to. What do you think there's one profession that is more than poets as far as committing suicide? Attorneys. Nope. <laughs> Thinkers. Dentists. No, dentists. Yeah. But that may just be, and that's the difficulty with looking at any of these studies is, uh, it's just an artifact of demographics, right? Because who's mostly dentists? Uh, upper middle class doctors. Yeah. White middle-aged men, yeah. which is also... In general, suicide statistics are the highest risk. Is it really? White middle-aged men. So it may just be that most dentists are white middle-aged men, so that's why it comes out so high, right? Interesting. But dentists are the only dentists are the only one who are worse than poets on So it's the statistic peak of dentists <laughs> as a profession and yeah. white middle aged men. Who would have thought dentists and writers would be in a similar category for something but and then poets are are on the higher end than most writers, right? But writers are pretty high, but poets are even more than, than writers on that. And then dentists are higher than both. Alright, so we said when we started talking about this, who's the person? That everyone thinks of if they think about poets and suicides. Sylvia Plath. Yep. Which to me is always such a goddamn shame. Because I like Sylvia Plath. I like her poetry. Uh, and I almost think it 
ruins the way that she gets looked at in some way. Because people focus on this sort of this horrific detail of her death. Everything's filtered through her death, right? And like, why, who mostly reads Sylvia Plath? If you were going to like be stereotypical about it, Uh, young women. Yeah, but not just young uh, women. Young, like particularly just young, young poet, women. young poets. Yeah, young poets in general. But I think you're right. Mostly female poets, but it's a particular kind, right? And it's this kind of. I think idea of I think people think of Sylvia Plath as having this very emotional poetry, which is certainly true of some of her poetry, but I don't think that's actually that true. I think a lot of her poetry is more detached, and a lot of her poetry is imagistic in a way. She's not a confessional poet, right? Although I think people think of her that way. But I think it's totally because people pay attention to the things that fit in with that story. Right? People pay more attention to her poems that fit into the story with how, of how she died, rather than into other things. Maybe we should read a couple Sylvia Plath poems. You want to read one? Yeah, I'll read one. Your, by Sylvia Plath. Clown-like happiest on your hands, feet to stars and moon skull, gilled like a fish. A common sense thumbs down on the dodo's mode. Wrapped up in yourself like a spool, trawling your dark as owls do. Mute as a turnip from the 4th of July to all fool's day, oh high riser, my little loaf. Vague as fog and looked for like mail. Farther off than Australia, bent-backed atlas, our travel prawn, snug as a bud, and at home like a sprat in a pickle jug. A creel of eels, all ripples, Jumpy as a Mexican bean, right, like a well-done sum, a clean slate with your own face on. <laughs> wow, that's that's a. I almost want to read that again because it, because I finally got it at the end. What it what what it is? It's like this sort of back and forth kind of rhythm, but. But that's not a dark poem. It's a no. funny poem. There's clever language yeah. things going on, and it's funny. Damn. <laughs> And it's good! And the language is really interesting, and the images are so interesting. Weird poem, it's cool. But that's not what people think about when they think of Sylvia Plath. Right, they focus on... They the think of someone, like, spewing dark emotions onto a page. And that's not really what her poetry is like. But people pay attention to that part because of the narrative, which is a fucking shame. <laughs> well, I like the... Uh, uh, where'd he go? I'm going to read another one, I think, but I really like... Oh, that's funny stuff. Mute as a turnip from the 4th of July to All Fool's Day. That's good. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's weird, though, because it's like kind of shifted how people think, look at her poetry. They don't pay attention to that stuff. Right. They pay attention to like... Don't get me wrong, like, I like Daddy Daddy. That's a good poem. But that fits in with the narrative of even though it's not really biographical, that fits in the narrative of someone who's committed suicide, right? Yeah. Is kind of looking at your father, father in this dark way. That's what people pay attention to. But I actually think her best poetry is not like that. I want to read another one of hers that I really like. Medusa. 
Off that land spit of stony mouth plugs, eyes rolled by white sticks, ears cupping the sea's incoherences, your house, your unnerving head, god ball, lens of mercies, your stooges playing their wild cells in my keel's shadow, pushing by like hearts, red stigmata at the very center, riding the riptide to the nearest point of departure, dragging their Jesus hair. Did I escape, I wonder? My mind whines to you, old barnacled umbilicus, Atlantic cable, keeping itself, it seems, in a state of miraculous repair. In any case, you're always there, tremulous breath at the end of my line, curve of water up-leaping to my water rod, dazzling and grateful, touching and sucking. I didn't call you. I didn't call you at all. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you steamed to me over the sea, fat and red, a placenta, paralyzing the kicking lovers, cobra light, squeezing the breath from the blood bells of the fuchsia. I could draw no breath, dead and moneyless, overexposed like an x-ray. Who do you think you are, a communion wafer? Blubbery Mary? I shall take no bite of your body, bottle in which I live, ghastly Vatican. I'm sick to death of hot salt, green as eunuchs. Your wishes hiss at my sins. Off, off, illy tentacle. There's nothing between us. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. That's Ma- that point. might maybe fit in a little more with the idea we think, but in a wonderful, weird yeah. way of telling off someone who's interested in you, but in a what a weird way to do it all, yeah. but... Catholic imagery and everything is good. It's great. It's a great piece. But, you know, but that's like, oh, what do you think of? Like, it's almost disgusting how Sylvia Plath gets portrayed in culture, right? Yeah. It's like, I think of how many tasteless jokes referencing, like, sticking her head in the oven or, you know, like, that's what that's what remains, unfortunately. Like, in popular culture, for people who don't read poetry, that's what people think of when they think of Sylvia Plath. Yeah, not this, like, strong woman with amazing... This amazing writer! Writer who, who, yeah. Wrote these, like, that would be amazing now if someone read that. And, like, that's so ahead of her time. So... But that's not what she gets remembered for, right? So, maybe, oh man. So, like what? What was that three, four, five years ago? There was that horrible Vice magazine fashion spread. Oh. This is an example of what I'm talking about where they. All female writers who would kill themselves? Writers who would kill themselves. And one was Sylvia Plath, of course. So like they had the models dressed up as the writers related to the way they killed themselves. What? So like the silly platter, she was like sitting in front of an open oven. Oh my god. I didn't know about this. Yeah. And I mean some were this wasn't it wasn't all poets, like a lot of them were but it was a vice thing. But it was right it was all right female writers. Which also like that's even worse, right? And because it's only female writers, which adds your whole misogynistic bent into the whole thing on top of it. I don't know, but it's like, 
it's disgusting, but then it's part of that romanticizing. It's of sort that, of like that the happens, it's you know? sort of like the highest level of it. It's like glamorized, like it's glamorous, it's glamorous in some weird way. Yeah, that's a tough one. But it's not. I don't know. There's nothing really glamorous about that. I mean, I'm not going to be someone who says that it's entirely negative, but even the positive things I see are the opposite of glamorous. Even if somehow that's a trade-off and you're tapping into something that you couldn't, which I'm not even sure that I buy that, but even if that's true, that's still not glamorous. It's ugly shit, you know? Yeah. It's just, but, but that's, I don't know. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's like, because it's a difficult thing. I don't know if that's like culture trying to process it in some way where people can deal with it or what that really is. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, no, that's what I would say it would be is the way that society sort of processes the epic image of the, the sort of sacrificial poet and how they get elevated into this light in this and they get elevated into this sort of mainstream uh simulacra this sort of like uh, uh imitation of an imitation of an imitation of an imitation of an imitation and then they put that image up or like in people's minds she represents they they put this person in this space where she represents this like in the canon of poetry or like you hear about this name, and the name immediately is synonymous with like these, 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 these dark things that are like. Uh, okay, but I like I like that term that you just said. You say canonization, and there's something very Catholic about it. It is like making them into saints in some way. It's like the martyrs, right? It's like this. Yeah, so the sacrificial. The Joan of Arc figure, the character. It's like uh, a martyr, right? It's martyr. like something of like, okay, and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, I know, there's a lot of good things. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic, all that, all that stuff, and there's some good things about it, but it is that same weird thing with saints, right? Of like martyrdom and sacrificing yourself for this cause, right? But I kind of think that's bullshit. I don't know. Well, we're talking about Sylvia Plath. Do you know about the Sylvia Plath effect? What's the Sylvia Plath effect? So, back into our psychological research. Uh, so, there was a psychologist, or there is a psychologist. He's still active in doing things. And we're going to say some nice things after we say some maybe kind of negative things. His name was James C. Kaufman. And he coined this term, the Sylvia Plath effect. He did some studies, again, about suicide and different based on occupation. Right? And he found, like many other studies have found, poets highest rate of suicide among any op occupation. Next to Much higher than everything else. <laughs> right? I don't know. He didn't have Dennis in his study. Okay. But, even more so, female poets were even much higher than male poets. And he coined this term, the Sylvia Plath effect, to kind of encapsulate that idea, like this this kind of thing that he discovered in doing this research. 
And he, his work in general, all of his work in psychology was about creativity, but a lot of it was based on this kind of idea of... A lot of it early on was based on this idea around suicide. Why poets? And then why female poets? Because there's a lot of ways... See, because I think what happened was, and we're going to see, he kind of regrets some of this now. How did the media run with this idea? And what is that data really telling us? They're two different things, I think. Um, how do you think the media ran with that story? What do you think the media said? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the media kind of ran with the things we're talking about. This kind of romanticized idea. Romanticized ideal, of, yeah. Of, oh, if you're creative, you're yeah on the brink of madness anyway and all of that kind of type thing yeah. kind of shit there's the, a lot of other things the way that genius is portrayed in the media the or the madness is portrayed in the media i mean now it's like a whole different thing because if you think about you know the way that the media is tackling this now it's like it's like a whole completely different i don't think so man i mean i actually find it really depressing i feel like it's a lot of the same narrative I mean, people are trying to be a little more politically correct about it. How many posts do you see about Anthony Bourdain where it doesn't, or it's still doing the same kind of thing and being like, oh, it's because he was too good for for this or whatever. Oh, well, he called out all these things in the industry. And of course, if you're, if you're going to be, if you're going to have that kind of integrity, that's going to be difficult on you. And I'll, I don't know. I think it's not that different, honestly. Yeah. I think it's a lot of the same narrative going on. Well, I do see that, you know, there's like, there are different people, like, bringing different sides into it, you know, because it's like, you know, the latest articles I've seen were like, you know, we need more people like Anthony Bourdain right now, which is like, that's an instant. Yeah, but that's part of the same narrative. I think people will say that. Canonization. But I think people say that about the writers and poets, too. It's not about being negative about them, right? But it's like, but it's saying, it's almost saying that in order to be creative or in order to do something good, you have to pay that price. Right. Which is bullshit. Well, right, that is bullshit. You know, but that's still the narrative. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I guess it's, I guess so, but it's part of the narrative. I, I see it coming through a little bit, but it's not coming through with every, with every, press thing about his life, you know? There's a lot of people singing his praises and talking about all the stuff that he did to stick up for people, and which, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't know. You mean, you don't, we don't really know our heroes. I, I guess, like, that's the thing about this whole, we don't know who our people are. I mean, we don't, you know, the, the saints of today, the heroes of today are like... Well, but it's the same thing. Look, I mean, I wasn't even going to say this, but it's like, I hate that shit, number one. I'm going to tell you right now, if you posted about Anthony Bourdain since he died, I'm probably pissed off at you. Because you know what? I never saw a single person that I was friends with ever post a single fucking thing about Anthony Bourdain the entire time he was alive. So if you're posting shit about someone after they died, after they committed suicide, and you never once posted something about them while they're alive, you're full of shit. There you go. You know? And that's part of the problem. It's like, you need a, you know, you can't stop, you can't 
stop suicide by being nice to people or by appreciating people. You should be nice to people and appreciate people. That's not going to stop them from committing suicide. That's not how suicide works. But if you only care about someone after they die, you're full of shit. You know? And you, that's not about them. That's about you. You know? Yeah. Agree with you. <laughs> but, so Kaufman did this thing with the Sylvia Plath effect. And it really, but, but I wanted to say, you know, what are some other reasons that might be? Well, there's a, and he said this in some of his, some of these things he said in some of his papers. When are people usually most successful as poets? In their early 20s, when they're young. Yep. Which is different from most other careers, right? So that could be part of this, right? Is that's also a high risk, you know, that's a high risk time when you're in those those early years and then it becomes not as high risk and then you get into middle age and it's high risk again and then you get older and it's low risk again, right? So that could be part of part of what's going on there for sure. But there's also this idea, which I don't know if he said this, but being a poet's not an easy thing to do. It's not something that's appreciated by society. So it might be that people who already have those kind of mental issues are drawn to being poets. <laughs> yeah, or like it's a window in which they can refract their life and understand it or something, or there's a window in which they can look at their life through a different sort of signs and signifiers and to be able to like um, kind of crack open the language to bring out a different understanding of, of their reality or whatever. Which also makes sense why female poets, especially in the past, would have a higher rate of suicide than male poets. Because you're more oppressed. You're more in a situation where poetry might offer you an outlet that you might not get in other areas. Sure. Right. But then, again, I don't think poetry or creativity makes people suicidal. It's maybe the other way around. People who are suicidal are drawn to those things. Because I do think something about people who have suicidal tendencies is Part of the reason is because you maybe are a little less delusional than the rest of the world, right? You're, you're less willing to lie to yourself. Because a lot of people, how they get through their day-to-day is by lying to themselves about things. If you choose not to do that, it's a lot easier to despair about things. You've got a lot more that you're dealing with, a lot more than you're fighting off if you're just lying to yourself to not have to deal with a lot of unpleasant things. Hey, I'm lying to myself right now. Because, <laughs> you know, it's almost 7 o'clock on a Wednesday and got shit to do. Uh, no, no, I mean, I'm, you know, lying to myself 
We all lie to ourselves. Well, everybody lies to themselves. Good but, but, the but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's part of it, right? So if you're already someone that's in that situation, poetry's an attractive thing to you. Because poetry <laughs> offers a way to not have to do that. It offers a way to be, yeah, I can just actually look at things for real and see things for the way that they are and express that in some way, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a ref. I think that you could look at poetry as a refuge, you know? It's a place you can go. It's a, it's a room that you can create. It's a space and a language that you can thrive in. It's sort of like a dialogue. You know, you open up a dialogue. You speak through a po- your poetry to other poets. You have a language that you create with other people for or with or by yourself in, in sort of that that space, that canvas that you create for yourself, you know? And you can walk in it and live in it and inhabit it, and you can deposit things in that space that you don't have to come and look at. You can leave them there. You can create a whole different world in which you can cope with something or w- which you can handle something. It's like poetry really provides you, like, all these other different little layers of existence. Which is can, the depth, which is totally the depth, of the, the opposite of most of existence. Right, like, because because most of existence wants you to exist on like a single. You you're giving the part of yourself that fits. Right, right. Where poetry doesn't make you do that. So I don't know. So it's time for some poetry again. I think there's a lot of beat poets who committed suicide for some reason. But do you know about Elise Cohen? No. Elise Cohen was very young. She, I think she killed herself by jumping out of a building window. I think she was in that horrible vice spread, too. Weirdly, even though she's obscure. But she was a B-poet. She went on a couple dates with Ginsburg, I guess, before Ginsburg uh, realized that women were not for him. <laughs> but she's an interesting poet. So I got a couple poems from her. One really short one. You want to read the short one or the long one? I'll read the short one. Short one. So she really liked Emily Dickinson, as we all do. And she had a bunch of short poems that were written to Emily. Emily. Come summer, you'll take off, you jewel bees, which sting me. I'll strip my stinking jeans, hand in hand, will run outside, look straight at the sun a second time, and get tanned. I like that. Yeah. Right, here's a little longer. It's sort of like a, an imagist. Kernel. Yeah. It's an imagist kernel. Like but a it's got like a, it's got that. Yeah. Little informal beat thing going on at the same time. So this is from was that Fuck You magazine. Oh, cool. The fuck uh, Ed Sanders. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. Is that from the Fugs? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Mimeograph. Yeah. Is it a Mimeo? Yeah. Yeah, it looks Mimeo. like it's a Mimeo. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, she, most of her poems don't have titles. So this one doesn't have a title. I took the skin of corpses and dyed them blue for dreams. Oh, I can wear these everywhere. I eat home in my jeans. I out the hair of corpses and wove myself a sheath finer than silk or wool, I thought, and shivered underneath. I cut the ears of corpses to make myself a hood. Warmer than forget-me-nots, I paid for that in blood. 
I robbed the eyes of corpses so I could face the sun. But all the days had cloudy skies and I had lost my own. From the sex of corpses, I sewed a union suit. Esther, Solomon, God himself, were humbler than my cock. I took the thoughts of corpses to buy my daily needs, but all the goods at all the stores were neatly labeled me. I borrowed heads of corpses to do my reading by. I found my name on every page and every word a lie. And then I met the spirits in whose tappings I am jailed. They buy me wine or read a book. No one can make my bail. When I become a spirit, I'll have to wait for life. I'll sell my deadly body to the student doctor's knife. Wow. Dark, but but in a kind of funny way. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. I don't know. That's someone... I I actually want to buy that book now because I think I'm going to put that in the show notes too. The thing is, she never published anything. I mean, in magazines... Yeah. Through her life, but she never published a book in her lifetime. And it, I think it was only in 2014 that finally someone, which I didn't know about, someone finally published a collection, a collected poem. Wow! Which I, looking into that, and I really like her stuff. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy that, and I'm gonna put that link up there because I think we, sh- I think all our listeners should buy that. I think that's good stuff. So. All right, we kinda, we've kind of gone a lot on this. We talked about the Sylvia Plath thing. Oh, but I forgot to tell you, Kaufman came around on stuff. He kind of regretted not so much what his study was, but he regretted the way that it got portrayed in the media. Now he's still doing psychological research about creativity. Okay, so... He talks about, which is funny, too, because I think about that, like, because of the Sylvia Plath effect. Think of all the pop songs and things that have Sylvia Plath. Talks about that in there, references in it, and all that negative shit from that. So he really kind of felt bad about that. Um, So now he's trying to do his research about creativity and focus it towards social justice. Because... His idea is, which I think is a good idea, um, is that you can use creativity to reach some outcomes and have some people have voices and things that you wouldn't necessarily have, right? That's a place for that. Yeah. So I do have to, I'm going to, I'm going to put a link to his little article about that, but I do, he came around on that. There's another pretty big psychologist who, who focused a lot on creativity and mental illness, and someone who, to me, I think was interesting, my brother, as maybe some people know or do not know, I don't know if I've mentioned that on the show before, uh, had some pretty serious mental health issues uh, that were difficult for him. He's also a very creative person in a lot of ways, both musically and writing and all kinds of things. And this, his, this, this guy's book was something that was very helpful to him when he was working what is this? Albert Rothenberg. He had this book called Creativity and Madness, New Findings and Old Stereotypes. And that's the book that I remember my brother reading. And it was actually something really helpful to him as he was going through that. And it's basically a bunch of case studies of different kind of famous people who were creative. 
that have mental health issues. Okay. It's a lot of people. <laughs> but he had this theory of, it's called Janusian thinking. Janusian? Like Janus, the Roman god of two faces, right? Yeah. And this idea that the way creativity works is you're in this transitional spaces, which there's positive things about that, but there's dangers about that. And I think the positive thing about his theory is he doesn't think that creativity is necessarily a door to mental illness, but it's a risk towards it is kind of his idea, right? I think I got a quote from him here, so him explaining his idea. One of the creative cognitive processes I've discovered is named the Janusian process most commonly operative in the earlier inspiration phase of creative production. The Janusian process consists of actively conceiving and using multiple opposites or antithesis simultaneously. The term, based on the multi-faced, variously possessing two, four, or six faces, Roman god Janus, looking always in diametrically opposed directions, denotes conscious conceptualization, an application during the creative process of simultaneously coexisting in cooperative, opposite, or antithetical ideas, propositions, or actions. So it's kind of like I that. like this. It's kind of like that Keats uh, negative capability. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Sort of like sort of like one exists with the other. One has to exist with the well, other. Well, or being able to let those opposite things exist, and there's something. Well, this was kind of what I was getting at earlier, being able to move between, being able to move into these places that, that you know, um, mentally, and like being in the, in the realm. I mean, as a poet myself, you know, I've sought refuge in, uh, in, in emotion through my writing. So like, you know, you, you find a place to put things, you know, you don't know where to put it. You can, you can open up and, you know, you can create yourself a landscape and, 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 and plot it. Put yeah. it down on a piece of paper, type it out through a, through a typewriter, through a computer, through a, through a pen. You know, the tactile feeling of writing poetry in, in a notebook, um, drawing it, painting it, you know, uh, using it as, a, as an outlet. You know, I think that's, that's uh, you know. But also, I think this idea of it's almost a... I don't know. I like Rothenberg, but it, but it, but it's kind of. I think he's kind of right, but it's also like a, a positive and a negative. The positive thing is, I think that's kind of true about how creativity creativity works. And I think it takes some of the stigma away from some of those things. I worry a little that it fits into the narrative of a mad creative person at the same time, though, because it's sort of saying, too, that... Which I don't know, though, but maybe that's partially true. That you're... That a creative person is seeing something that most people don't see. And that there's something dangerous with that. But I do like that Heath says there's a way to do that, to see those things without it being mental illness. Which, that's the positive thing of yeah. what he's doing. 
you know. Who said Burroughs? Didn't Burroughs say language is a language is a virus sent to Earth from outer space? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of those quotes like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I was talking about Kaufman earlier. I forgot. We got to read some of these quotes. We got two. So I found this interesting New York Times article when they were first reporting some of those Kaufman things about the Sylvie Plath effect. And there are some funny writer responses in this article that I really liked. From New York Times article, uh, not everyone is impressed with Mr. Kaufman's findings, Maxine Cuman, 79, and the former poet laureate of New Hampshire said. The suicide rate among poets is not as is not nearly as high as it is among dentists. And for her own ribald age, she said, Well, I'm not depressed. I am relatively solitary. I was in my 30s when I, when I started to write, so I don't think I peaked early. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she continued and said, Well, I, I talked about the dentist stuff. And she said, Which I like this part. There's a lugubrious fascination, an erotic fascination with the early death of poets. I guess I don't fit the mold. Well, there is something erotic about it, right? There's some, like, there is some sexual aspect of that romanticizing of it. There is. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I it, I think, again, I just think it's how we we raise these figures up and we how they, how they sort of take their place in our, our sort of, like, mystical cult like the mystical side of our culture you know sort of like the ones that slip away you know you think about like the american poet right like the uh the book of uh the book of poetry the james uh jim morrison you know you think of uh, his poetry and how he works through his poetry too well and there is a lot of that's 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 good though too because there's a lot of overlap from the way rock stars and poets right in american culture you know like the whole like the yeah whole, like, yeah the whole like Janie. Janice and, and Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix. There's a lot of overlap in those things. Yeah. The way that the poet is treated, you know, in this sort of like a uh, sacrificial way. But yeah. I also like in this article, Franz writes. Yeah, what's Franz writes about? So, you know, Franz Wright, I, you know, I got mixed feelings about his poetry, honestly, but he is someone who suffered from depression and drug addiction himself, so he's kind of a good person to think about this, but I like what he said. He said, I've given this matter a good deal of thought. Since in the U.S., the worse you write, the better chances of survival, it stands to reason that poets would be the youngest to die. Perhaps they're more delicious and succulent than other writers. <laughs> wow. Again, but that's saying the same thing. It kind of is, but I don't know. But he's also being a little facetious about it, but I like that. I like that. I'm <laughs> more succulent than otherwise. And then he said, I know a lot of poets who've led normal, productive lives. It's a little insulting. Poets do suffer. Writers do suffer. Our culture doesn't value poetry, and it drives poet crazy, but you take your chances. Who said that? That's friends, right, did. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That was after his joke. Comment. Yeah. Well, that's good. I like that. And I think both of those things are true. I mean, I like his joke comment, too, because I think it kind of makes the ridiculousness. Yeah. That romanticized notion. Um, you know, and I don't know. I don't want people to read poets with suicide in mind. 
at the same time, there's a lot of poets who've committed suicide who I think are great poets, and I want you to read them. Some of the ones maybe we didn't get to. Anne Sexton. Uh, John Barryman, we talked about what we didn't do. Paul Salon. Really? Yeah, Paul Salon. Um, Sarah Teasdale. Vladimir Mayakovsky. Cesare Pavese. Randall Jarrell. Richard Bradigan. Oh, maybe I'm going to make you read Richard Bradigan real quick. Rene Crevel. Vasha Lindsay. Uh, Amelia Rosselli, who I think I talked about in one of our Six Poets episodes, and I really like. And there's probably more than a miss. Maybe when we think about writers who've committed suicide, that shouldn't... I mean, I also worry about that, right? I think sometimes people don't want, like, people don't want to, people don't want kids to read writers who've committed suicide because they worry they're going to look into it or something, and, which to me is bullshit. I don't, I don't know. I don't want anyone to kill themselves, obviously. It's a hard thing, and it's something that is, an everyday thing you gotta fight against is something you're dealing with. I think these people are probably some of the strongest people you're ever gonna meet, ever gonna read. And and not just the ones who did it, even people who are just struggling with that, but you don't always know that, right? But you know the people who did that, that they were strong with that. They have insights into things that no one else does. I think there's a value in reading writers who've committed suicide because they're facing what existence is in this very real and raw way. Not that that's something you should seek out, but there's someone who had to do it. And I think... That comes through in their writing. And it's not about them killing themselves that brings them there. But it, it's it's a signal that they were dealing with that. Plenty of other writers dealt with that. Didn't sure. didn't fall yeah. to that. And that's fine. I mean, not that it's falling. I don't want to make that a negative thing. Because it's not. Like, that's just... It's a hard thing. And that happens. And that, that's not a failure if someone ends up killing themselves. It's really not... Um, I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying you know with those people that they were struggling with that, and I think it comes through in the writing. And I think that those are people that you should be... I don't know, and I think about writers who... The writers we've been talking about, a lot of them are some of the writers with the most depth in the writing of anyone that I've ever read, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, and, I, and I think of other writers who were struggling with that, but manage to live long lives. But two, the people who are struggling with that are the people who have something that they've seen and felt and thought about and found some way to express, right? Yeah. Alright, let's do two things. One will be funny. We'll lighten this up a little. I'm going to make you read two short Brodigan pieces. silly Brodigan pieces. And then I'm going to read this We'll open and close with heart cream, this this kind of found heart cream poem. <laughs> These are both short. They're both funny. 
and they're going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> well, the second or one of them will at least. The pumpkin tide. I saw thousands of pumpkins last night come floating in on the tide, bumping up against the rocks and rolling up on the beaches. It must be Halloween in the sea. I like that. <laughs> I guess that's... <laughs> the beautiful poem. I go to bed in Los Angeles thinking about you. Pissing a few moments ago, I look down at my penis affectionately. Knowing it has been inside you twice today makes me feel beautiful. <laughs> it's good, though. It's, that is kind of like a nice sweet thing, even though it's, uh... <laughs> 3 a.m., January 15th, 1967. Brodigan's great, too. If you haven't read Brodigan, I wish I could put stuff from trout fishing in America, which is... A weird book. It's a great book. You should check it out if you haven't checked it out. In the Watermelon Sugar? Isn't that another one? That's a good, another one, too. But you're, you know trout fishing in America, right? It's kind of poetry, but it's also like... Yeah. But it's also like a lot of lists and a mm -hmm. lot of like... It's sort of a narrative in it's some an way, experience. too. It's, it's good. It's a great, a great book. Concept book. You should check it out, you know? It's a good book. Yeah. Alright, well, maybe I'll close this out with and when we started with Heart Crane, maybe we'll end with Heart Crane here. Um, a little while back, I'm going to find the right page here. I got too many pages. So I don't know about this project. Do you know about this project? Reveal, Read and View English in American Literature. It's at UT, Austin. And they digitized a bunch of papers for... 19th and 20th century writers. And while they were doing this, they were digitizing some of Hart Crane's papers. And they found this wonderful poem. Um, so this is was never published. It's only in a sign type script. Uh, and it was, I, I don't know, they just found that I wish, I don't know if I have the year on here, but it wasn't that long ago. I feel like I remember running into this maybe like three or four years ago. And it's wonderful. All right. Supplication to the muses on a trying day. Oh, and there's a little epigraph. How many dawns chill from the rippling rest the seagull's wing shall? Hold it in a high wind. The fender curving over the breastplate, and all in high gear, I watched to see the river rise. The forests had all given out their streams and tributaries. When would the bones of DeSoto come down in the wild rinse? And when would Ponce de Leon remember Hammerfest? There were periods when the salt-rising bread broke out all over me in heinous sores. If you can't abuse a machine, why have it? Machines are made for abuse. Foolproof. Human beings were never jetted, conceived, articulated, ejected, nursed, jetted, conceived, spanked, corrected, educated, harangued, married, divorced, 
petted, emasculated, loved and damned, jailed and liberated, besides being plastered, frightened and mangled, pickled and strangled, they are never meant to be abused. Thou art no more than Chinese to me, O moon, a simian chorus to you, and let your balls be nibbled by the flirtatious Huachichango. The tide would rise and did. I held the crupper by a lasso conscripted from white mice tails spliced to the foretop gallant. Old mizzen top rose, but all in vain. It was a wild night among the breakers and the smooth raccoons. All the pistols came dressed in white lattice, winking as never before, but the prawns held out till nearly daybreak, simpering and equivocating. By the time I reached Berlin, or was it Shanghai, there were no more stitches for wounds, nor tortoises for telescopes. What a waste of eternity. I exclaimed into the ear of the most celebrated microphone you ever smashed. Then the wind rose, and I strangled in the embraces of a derelict cigarette. These dermatologists of Mozambique have got hold of me since. They say my digits fidget, that I'm but a follicle of my former fratricide. What shall I do? I masticate firmly and bite off all my nails. I practice invention to the brink of intelligibility. I insult all my friends and ride ostriches furiously across the Yukon while parrots berate me to the accompaniment of the most chaste reticules. By all the mysteries of Gomorrah, I ask what can gaping gastronomists gather in such a gulch of simulation? That is, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I've never heard that piece before. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Yeah. He, wow, wow, talk about ahead of your time. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Where was this published? It was in, uh, it was among his papers, and they found it when they were digitizing his manuscripts, and digitizing like all his letters and things. Wow. Was never published. It's great. <laughs> yeah, wow. That is really good. So, alright. Well, we talked about poets. We talked about suicide. Great poets. A lot of great poets. So look, that's maybe the takeaway. If you're suicidal, man, there's nothing wrong with that. A lot, you're in great company. Don't kill yourself. But you're in great company. You're, there's, 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 there's a lot of people who have dealt with that in their life. Yeah, there's a lot of people who have worked through a lot of different things. Some did, some didn't, and whatever, but... You, there's, an out, there's outlets for it, whether it's artistic or musical or writing or, you know, whatever, whatever your outlet is. Find an outlet, you know. And, you know, what? what is... This is my stupid metaphor. You're a captain of a ship. But this is like back in the days when ships are made of wood. We don't have great navigation equipment. But you love the sea. That's your, that's your purpose in life. You gotta go out on the sea and you're doing that. First time you run into a big storm. You think there's waves higher than your ship. It seems inescapable. You think you're going to die. There's no way out of this thing. And sometimes you might. Some people die in that first storm. You never make it out. 
but maybe you get through. And you're able to get your ship back to shore, damaged and barely working, but you get there. There's a couple things you can do. You can be delusional about it and say, well, I'm going to get my ship kind of fixed, but that was just some bad luck. I'm never going to run into it again. Or you could say, well, this is probably going to happen again at some point, right? I'm not a, I'm not a shipbuilder. I'm a captain. So I'm going to find someone who's going to prepare my ship to weather that storm the next time it comes around. Because it might be a long time, but it's going to happen. And that's how I think about it, right? It's a hopeless feeling. It is like being lost at sea. But you can do things to prepare for it. Doesn't mean it's going to work. But if that's something you're struggling with, do what you can do to prepare for it. And there is something romantic about that. Who doesn't want to be out at sea and face those dangers? And you got to face things and experience things other people aren't going to experience. But you didn't choose to do that necessarily. That's just who you are, right? And that's fine. But that doesn't mean don't get help, neither. Because good captain's going to prepare your ship for what's coming. Yep. You can't sell the ship alone, really. You can't, either. So, I don't know. I hope we uh, <laughs> navigated this in some way <laughs> where uh, it made sense. But I really, you know, but also check these poets out, you know, and don't avoid writers or, or, or another. Don't avoid artists. Don't avoid writers because don't look negatively at people who killed themselves because that's really not fair. Like, well, yeah, look at their life, look at the canon, and there's so much to celebrate in these lives. That's how I look at it. There's yeah. so much to celebrate in the lives of these poets that, you know, you, you don't focus on the, you know, on the uh, the one aspect of who they are, which is their, which is the ending of who they are. You know, let's focus on the aspects of uh, who, who they were, you know, and through their writing and the different places that they were able to travel and, and experience and, you know, yeah. I don't know, hopefully we're able to give you some different poems from some different writers that you you know, you uh, you haven't heard, and um, you know, tell us tell us about more. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, somebody we didn't cover. We should have. There's probably a lot. Well, we'll cover them in six poets you haven't heard of, or something. Yeah, there we go. All right, it's another episode of No Good Poetry. All right, <laughs> see you next week. I notice you were stark naked. How about this? Black and stiff. Not a bad fit. Marriott. It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs to the roof. Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Now your head, excuse me, is empty. I have the ticket for that. Come here, sweetie, out of the closet. Well, what do you think of that? Naked as paper to start. But in 25 years, she'll be silver and 50 gold. A living doll everywhere you look. It 
sew, it can cook, it can talk, talk, talk. It works. There is nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it? Marry it. Marry it. I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or hachoo. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters of beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ah, do, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eesh, 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 eesh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure. My gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack. I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygook and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you. Not God, but a swastika. So black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty, I tried to die and get back. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the roof. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart. 
and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. Thank <laughs> you.